At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Trump attorney Jenna Ellis has pled guilty in the Georgia election interference case. Can I just say, she tweeted mean things to me. You see how this works, right? <laughs> we have such an interesting show today. The Atlantic's McKay Coppins joins us to spill the tea on his new biography of the one, the only Mitt Romney, entitled Romney, A Reckoning. Then we'll talk to ProPublica's Andy Kroll, and he'll tell us about the never-ending saga of Leonard Leo and his corruption of our Supreme Court. But first, we have legendary campaign manager, and actually he's quite handsome, the author of the conspiracy to end America five ways my old party is driving our democracy to autocracy from the Lincoln Project's Stuart Stevens. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Stuart Stevens. Thanks, Molly. Appreciate you asking me to the party. Stuart Stevens, tell us what this book is called and give us the TLDR. The book is called The Conspiracy to End America, Five Ways My Old Party is Driving Our Democracy to autocracy. It's a book I never thought I would write and falls in the category of a book I can't imagine not writing now. What really struck me was when you read about how democracies fall into autocracy, and there's so much great work that's been done on that by Ruth Ben-Ghiat, uh, Jen Mershes. There always seems to be five elements that are present. And we talk about each of these five, but I don't think that we talk about them collectively enough and how they interface sometimes deliberately and sometimes just synergistically. So that, that's why I wrote the book. Explain to us a little bit about what the sort of 
scariest, most autocratic kind of things you've observed are? Yeah. So the five elements are support of a major party, which certainly the Trumpist movement has, financiers, they have money out the wazoo, the Peter Thiels of the world, whatever they need, propagandist, which they have, we all know about that. You need shock troops, which they certainly have, and we saw on January 7th. And you need, and I think this is really the most troubling, you need a legal theory to justify what you're doing. So if Georgia passes a law that says it's okay to overturn the popular vote, when they do it, it'll be perfectly legal. And there is a tremendous effort out there to change the legal structure of our entire electoral system. I want you to explain to us a little bit about where you think we are sort of in this autocratic. There's sort of what happens, and we've talked to Ruth Ben-Ghid about this, is there's sort of an autocratic, not even system, if that makes sense, but there's sort of stages of autocracy. What stage do you think we're in and how do you think we can sort of slow it down or stop it? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I, I think part of the problem, Molly, when we talk about this is how to talk about it without sounding alarmist. But to me, it's, it's like a, a serious pandemic. Whatever you say at the beginning is going to sound alarmist, but in the end, it's likely to prove inadequate. And I think that's where we are. I think if Donald Trump is elected or a Trump wannabe like DeSantis, it will be the last election that we can recognize as an American election. The danger here is the inability to imagine this happening. The problem with the unimaginable is it's hard to imagine. Whenever a democracy slides into autocracy, there is always an aspect that those who support democracy can never imagine it happening. That's where I think we are. And there are these buffoonish characters out there that we see every day, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Matt Gates, Lauren Boparts. But in a way, I think that serves a purpose because it, it makes it easy to dismiss this moment and this movement as buffoonish. And it's not. These are dead serious people. They're very patient people and they think they're going to win and they feel that there's an urgency about it. At the root of this is they believe that democracy now has become their enemy. It's the way the country is changing. Trump's coalition is 85% white in a country that's 60% white and rapidly changing. We're headed to minority majority country in a way we already are. Those who are 16 years and under, the majority are non-white, and odds are really, really good. They'll still be non-white when they turn 18, start voting. And that's what terrifies them. And they know that they have a short window here to, in essence, curate the vote, change the way that we vote. And they are about the business of doing it. It's going to continue if Trump loses, if Biden is reelected, because they are very patient. And their model for this is really the Federalist Society. You know, Federalist Society began, I think it was 1984, a weekend conference in Haven with the sort of benign title of the future of the conservative judiciary. And out of that grew the Federalist Society. And it's hard to look around today and think the Federalist Society didn't win. Yeah. No, they definitely won. Let's talk about right now kind of where you are, what you're seeing, what you're thinking. Yeah, for me, it's extraordinarily sobering and not a good feeling to look at all these people I helped elect and see how they've really collapsed. You know, I will never ask myself again how 1930s Germany happened. And, you know, there's sort of a trope. We can't talk about 30s Germany or World War II because that then reduces everything to sort of absurdity. I feel exactly the opposite. I think we have to talk about it. It doesn't mean it's going to end in a world war. It's not going to end with 100 million people dead. But this process of good people 
who know better, who feel that they can interject an element into politics to serve their needs at the moment and control it, is completely analogous to 1930s Germany. And the Republican Party realized that they had lost touch with a low-frequency voter, white voter. When I did work for Mitt Romney in 2012, you could see these voters in a poll. And they could have cared less about what we were talking about. The idea we're going to have, you know, strong on Russia, we're lower taxes, smaller government. They could have cared less about that. And to reach those voters, you need to do what Trump did. You needed to go out and have a racist message, a xenophobic message. You need to attack Muslims. And of course, you know, I think people have a much better sense of Romney now. I mean, if you had walked into Mitt Romney's office and talked about it, you know, he would have thrown you out. What's interesting to me, Molly, and sobering, and I think it's humbling to me, is I would have bet anything that if you did this, as Trump did, the voters you gained, you would have lost more at the upper end of college-educated Republicans. I want to talk about that a little more because what you just said is really interesting. What you're saying, these college-educated Republicans are willing to go along with things they know are wrong. Yes. Because they think they'll get things they want. So talk about that more. Well, you know, all this talk about Trump being a working class candidate has always been false. In 16, he didn't care. If you consider working class voters, those who make, say, 50,000 under or 75,000 and under, he won white voters in that category. But he didn't win the majority of the voters because the majority of those people are not white. And then in 20, the only economic group that he carried a majority of is those who make over $100,000 a year. And I think that it's a combination of factors. I think that these are people who are troubled more than they like to admit by a changing America. I think that they see this sort of specter of an assumed power that comes from being white and wealthy as being endangered. And they don't want to be the person who's standing in the Capitol in a Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt, but that person is voting for the same person that they are. And that's ultimately what matters. The Lincoln Project, and I can say this without any false modesty because I wasn't involved in founding the Lincoln Project, that group of voters that soft Republicans who were the last to join Trump, mostly after the Comey letter in 16, that was the target of the Lincoln Project. And when you look at these numbers, Biden carried just enough of those voters to make a difference so he could win states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. And I think that there is a greater opportunity to expand that for a lot of reasons. January 7th is one reason. I think it, it genuinely terrified a lot of people. I think the Dobbs decision is a huge factor. But still, you look at polls and Donald Trump is tied or beating Joe Biden. And if he's doing that in the popular vote, he's going to win the Electoral College easily. Certainly, we're all very worried about these polls. But do we think these polls are wrong? No, I think these polls ultimately don't matter because people aren't voting. Right. It's 400 days away and it's also a national poll. I've worked at five presidential campaigns. And the one thing I think is a constant, whatever you think is going to happen in Europe, that can happen. We really don't know what the race is going to be about. Right. I think that it is a mistake to look at Biden's numbers and compare them to a pre-Trump political world. So in 2012, on election day, Romney and Obama both had favorables of 50%. Right. I don't think we're going to see that again for a long time. So, you know, you, you look at Biden's numbers, he's at 43, 42, 44, bouncing around in some trading range there, and you go, 
well, wait a second, you can't win if you're an incumbent president unless you're up to like 49 or 50. I don't think that's true. It could be true, but I don't think it has to be true. What do you think about this Dean Phillips just announced that he is going to, I mean, nobody's ever fucking heard of that guy, but he's going to primary Biden. And then there's also like other people like Dean Phillips, for example, RFK Jr. is going to run as an independent. He probably pulls more from Trump, it turns Maybe. out, right? And then no labels is a fantasy about, you know, doing whatever they can to hurt Biden. So, I mean, how worried are you about all of those scenarios? On a scale of one to 10, I'm at 100. <laughs> oh, good. So relax is what you're saying. Listen, I, I had a going out of business sale for my optimism with the Republican Party. It is critical that this be a binary choice between Trump and Biden. I am suspicious even of RFK Jr. because polls may show now that he takes more from Trump. I think and you know these people, Molly, I guess you may know them better than I. You know, there is a certain suburban voter out there that is anti-vax. Youngin benefited a lot from them. They thought that lockdowns were too much. I think that if RFK Jr. cleaned up his act and seemed like a reasonable person a little bit more, that if he got in debates, if they have debates, he could end up pulling more from Biden. Because I think that there are a lot of voters out there, obviously we know this, that don't like the choice. But it is the choice. And it is about the business of the Biden campaign to hold up a mirror and say, is this who you are? This is who you are if you vote for Donald Trump. And it doesn't matter if you find him distasteful or the stupid thing, you don't like to tweet or what he says. If you vote for Donald Trump, you are endorsing all of the worst of Donald Trump. And is this really the country you want to live in? And I think that's a very powerful message. And Biden ultimately can win a referendum on democracy and he can win a referendum on decency. And, you know, I think one of the things that happened in 2018 that really benefited Democrats was when Biden went out and started talking about democracy and sort of put it on the ballot. Yeah, that actually turned out to work really well for him, even though a lot of the pundit industrial complex said it wouldn't. Right. You know, I mean, the one thing I know about politics is if you're in a campaign and you want voters to care about something, you have to prove you care about it. You have to go out and talk about it and make it an issue. And, you know, that people say, well, it's going to be about grocery prices or gas prices. Well, it could have been, but it doesn't have to be. And if it is, that's a race you're going to lose. So, you know, if I was sitting in that room, I would say, look, we may not win a race about democracy. We may not be able to make the race about democracy, but it's our best shot. And that's what we should be doing. And it's important. So I think that they understand this in the Biden campaign. I actually have a lot of respect for the Biden campaign. It's incredibly difficult to beat an incumbent president. You know, I tried in 2012, I failed. And they, I think, are a very patient campaign. I don't think they right. can. So it's really going to be a race, though, that is unlike any other that in our lifetime or any that we've had in America. Because you're going to have one party that is a normal, traditional American political party that will be putting forth a, a center left agenda. And the other party doesn't believe that the incumbent president is legal. Yeah. So they think we live in an occupied country. No, it's absolutely beyond stupid. What do you do with that? I don't know. It's very troubling. I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, actually, this is really quite bad, even though I think about this every day. But for it whatever worse, reason, it's, yeah. you know, we live in a country with 400 million guns. Yeah, the guns thing is bad. 
as, as a Southern friend of mine likes to say, what's the difference between Fort Sumner and January 7th? Well, nobody died at Fort Sumner. Yeah. You know, I often think, what is it like to work in the White House and work on congressional liaison trying to help Biden pass something like infrastructure? So you go up on the hills and you're talking to a lot of people. And it's not that they don't like your boss or they don't agree with your boss. They don't think your boss is president. Right. I mean, how do you begin to do that? And yet Biden has accomplished tremendous things. I mean, I think Biden has been a great president. It's sort of the unreality of this Republican Party. Completely divorced from reality. They live in a different world. Now, in that world, it all makes sense, right? You have to just get inside their world. It's like crop circles. Once you understand it, then you really know what it's about. So they live in a world in which obviously Joe Biden didn't win this election. I mean, do we even need to talk about that? I mean, how can we vote for Joe Biden? He can't even have a rally with a thousand people. So our guy had the election stolen. That's what they believe. And now, because he's, they know he's going to win, the only way they can stop him and the only way that they can stop the legally elected president from taking office again is to put him in jail. So every time he gets indicted, it's just one more effort of the deep state to stop Donald Trump. He's that powerful. And once you start believing that and your friends believe that, and you can say this aloud at a tailgating party or a football game, and people don't think that you're a lunatic, it becomes self-reinforcing. And the failure of the Republican Party is that all of the people that you and I know, the same people who are elected officials, who think this is just batshit crazy. They're not saying for the most part that it's batshit crazy. They're just remaining silent. Stuart Stevens, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Mo. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. McKay Coppins is a writer at The Atlantic and author of Romney, A Reckoning. Welcome to Fast Politics, McKay Coppins. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to have you. I want you to talk to us as much as you feel comfortable, but give us more because you like me, let's be honest, about how you got to write this book, because I feel like there's an interesting backstory here. Yeah, it is kind of interesting. I mean, I have covered Mitt Romney for 10 years. And when I covered his presidential campaign, you know, he was known as this highly cautious, highly controlled, highly calculating candidate, right? And that does not make for a very compelling subject for a biography. (laughs) So, you know, if I had had the opportunity to do this book 10 years ago, I don't think I would have done it. But I had been talking to him since he arrived in Washington as a senator. I'd profiled him for The Atlantic. And I could tell after January 6th that something was going on with him. Like something had like been knocked loose by watching the leaders of his party attempt to overthrow a presidential election. And like he just seemed like he was in this soul searching mode. He was asking difficult questions about what his party had become, what was happening to the country. He genuinely believed that American democracy is more fragile than we realize and could see the seeds of its kind of demise. And he was sort of ready to unburden himself. So I basically just went to him and said, look, I think you're in an interesting moment right now. I think you're in a kind of unusual headspace for a sitting politician. I want to write this book. I want to write your biography, but I only want to do it if you're ready to be totally candid, right? <laughs> like right. to tell all the stories. And if you're not ready to do that, that's fine. Maybe we re- revisit it down the line. But to my pleasant surprise, he decided to just go all in. He gave me his journals. He gave me very sensitive emails with high profile Republicans. And from the very beginning, I could tell that he was ready to kind of take this seriously. You had enough of a sense that if he said he was a man of his word and that if he said he was really going to go all because I think so much about as someone who has written about my entire life by my mother, which made me a psychopath. We love you for it, Molly. (laughs) At least someone does. But people are never happy with what's written about them. And I was thinking about this because I was I've been reading the book and I've been reading the pieces about the book. And and this is like one of the very, very, very few political books where it actually tells the real stuff. So did you like sit around freaking out thinking like he's going to hate this? (laughs) The deal that we had was this was not going to be an authorized biography in the sense that he had any editorial control of the final products like, but I would let him read it before it was published. And right. And that I would have kind of a good faith conversation with him if he thought there was anything that was, you know, lacking context or inaccurate or whatever. I will say, like, as a journalist, as a writer, author, like, I I tried to 
keep that out of my head while I was writing the the draft, right? Like I, I wanted to just tell the story as clearly and accurately and as fair-mindedly as possible, knowing that there were going to be things in this book he didn't like. And I don't think I'm, uh, you know, betraying any confidences by saying that he definitely didn't like some things in the book. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me kind of broadly or not so broadly where he sort of pushed back. Yeah, I think there were two things. I think the first reaction was just that I worked on this with him for two years. I interviewed him over the course of two years. I had all these journals. A lot of our meetings were, you know, he's a lonely guy in Washington. He doesn't have a lot of friends in his own party. His family doesn't visit him. So, And he's eating those those fish fillets with the barbecue. Salmon ketchup sandwiches every night. Oh. By himself. <laughs> read, read the book if you if the listeners don't know the reference to that. But he would spend a lot of time with me just kind of venting. And I think sometimes he just enjoyed the company and kind of forgot who he was talking to. And so when he read the book, I think he was taken aback by how much he had told me. He started to worry a little about like, wow, people are really going to hate me when this book comes <laughs> out. But those people already hated him. And that's what I tried to remind him. And and, and interestingly, I think that's what Anne, his wife, is also reminding him. Like, you don't really care what Josh Hawley thinks of you. You don't care yeah. what A.D. Vance thinks of you. Like, that ultimately, I think that argument won the day. The other side of it that I think is more interesting is a lot of this book deals with the rationalizations he made, especially in the kind of first, you know, period of his career, when he was trying to become president, how he would talk himself into doing things and crossing lines that he maybe wouldn't have otherwise crossed or take positions that he wasn't sure he totally agreed with. And he, after reading the book, felt like I gave disproportionate weight to those episodes and that, you know, it made it seem like his entire life and career was kind of relativistic and, you know, unprincipled. And I don't think that's true. I think he's actually an uncommonly diligent, conscientious guy for somebody right. in politics. But for sure. the reason that I paid attention to that stuff so much is because I think it kind of infects all of our politics. I think that the reason our kind of democracy is in the sorry shape that it's in right now is in large part because all these elected leaders have, you know, found ways to rationalize doing things that they know are wrong. And so having a subject like Mitt Romney, who is willing to reflect honestly and kind of grapple with that reality and those those episodes, I thought was a really telling insight into the psychology of the American political class. And so I focused on it a lot. Were you disappointed when he announced he wasn't going to run again? And did you try to convince him to stay? (laughs) I steadfastly was neutral on the question of whether he should run again, because it's one of those things where as a biographer, journalist, like you don't want to have too much influence over what decisions they make. But we talked about it a lot. I knew he was leaning this way for a year before he announced it. Because he's sort of unreplaceable. Yeah, well, and that and that's the thing. But the problem is the the handful of senators on both the right and the left that he does get along with and he does feel like are at least trying to pass legislation, do, you know, trying to do the work that they were sent to Washington to do. They're either gone or on their way out. So he's increasingly isolated. He feels like as long as Republicans are in control of any branch of government, the likelihood of getting any laws passed is pretty minuscule. And, you know, the the more human side of this is he's he's getting older. 
he is, I write about this in the book, he's kind of haunted by this, uh, this, the like premonitions of his own death. And this goes all the way back to his, you know, youth. But he's always had this weird haunting, right? Yes. He, he had a, you know, went through a traumatic car accident when he was a Mormon missionary in France, where one of the passengers in the car died and has kind of ever since then had these premonitions that he would die of a sudden and violent death. And you know, as you can imagine, on January 6th, that that thought was going through his mind when he narrowly escaped the mob. But, you know, he's now getting older and he he doesn't know when he's going to die. His wife has multiple sclerosis. She's in good health now. But he wants to spend the last few years he has that are good years, not sitting in the Senate caucus lunches with Josh Hawley and Ted mm-hmm. Cruz, but with his family and kids and grandkids. And I, and I understand. But he did sounds like he has post-traumatic stress from the car accident. I don't want to poo-poo premonitions, but... He thinks about it a lot. He thinks yeah. about what his death might look like. I think that it, it is, interestingly, though, has informed this last stage of his career in a really helpful way, because right. the more he's been thinking about his own mortality, the more he's kind of has the the possibility of his death kind of front of mind. It makes him think less about how he gets along with his caucus in the Senate or the next reelection and more about like how his obituary will be written. What is legacy? Okay. And the more that he thinks about those things, the more he's able to kind of do the hard, brave things like be the only Republican to vote to convict the president from his own party rather than worrying about the day to day politics. Right. You're both Mormons. How much do you think that informs some of his decisions around politics? And how much was that a bond for both of you? Oh, there's no question. I mean, I I would be silly to deny that that wasn't part of how we kind of got to know each other and, and understood each other. Yeah. I mean, I say this as a Jew. I'm not a religious Jew, but lately I had a friend who is a fancy British Jew and she was weeping to me about how lonely she felt. And I just wonder how much religion and connection are uh, relevant. No, we understood things about each other, not just being Mormon, but we both grew up in places where there were very few Mormons. He grew up in Michigan. I grew up in Massachusetts. And one thing he said to me was, you know, when you grow up Mormon in a place where there aren't a lot of people of our faith, and this is probably true of other faiths as well, is that you learn how to be different in ways that are important to you. And that resonated with me a lot. I felt like I certainly felt that way, you know, drinking Diet Coke while my friends were drinking beer at parties in high school, you know, like all those little moments like pile up over a lifetime and help you and can prepare you to take difficult positions that are, you know, politically inconvenient or make other people dislike you, but you believe are important. And Romney hasn't always followed that instinct, but I think he is in this last stage of his career. And I think that our talking about, he felt free to talk about those things and not have to explain all of it. We could use a shorthand with each other. And I I do think that helped make our interviews and our conversations more fruitful. There's so much stuff in this book that people are like, oh my, you know, it's jaw drop (laughs) after jaw drop and I don't want to leave any of them out. So, and I'm sure I will, but I just want you to talk about the Romney warning McConnell of the dangers of January 6th. That must have been something. Yeah, well, Romney had gotten a call from Senator Angus King a few days before January 6th, who said, I just talked to a senior defense official who told me they're monitoring online chatter from extremists on the right who are saying that they're going to do some very bad stuff on January 6th. And Mitt Romney's name had been popping up like, you know, as a potential target. And everybody 
he's gotten some degree of that call in this Trump world. I mean, like I got a call from I mean, sure, you've gotten calls from the security people at the Atlantic that are like, you're on a 4chan thread. But oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty chilling. I think it was that it was pegged to the specific date when the president, you know, was going to come and rally his supporters about stopping the steal. What I write about in the book, though, is that Mitt, after hanging up from that call, immediately texted Mitch McConnell and said, you know, I just got off the phone with Angus King. Here's what he told me. I'm concerned that people are going to storm the Capitol on January 6th, among other things, and that we're not prepared. I want to make sure that we're prepared for this. Mitch McConnell never responded to that time. Right. Did he feel like Mitch McConnell never got it? I mean, did he he have any thoughts? He knows that Mitch McConnell got it. Look, I think that this was a moment, you know, it was kind of the final stage of this idea that like that famous quote from The Washington Post, what from a Republican strategist. Right. Let him play golf. I think it was like, what's the harm in humoring him? Right. Yeah. What's the harm in humoring him? That's what was happening. Like, yeah, we know Trump lost, but, you know, we can let him say whatever he wants to say. We, there's no point in making him mad at us now. And I think Mitch McConnell was playing that same game and he didn't want to make a stir, rock the boat, whatever, in the final days of Trump's presidency. And what we got was what happened on January 6th. And Romney, I mean, one of the things is even still when you ask him about January 6th, he gets so viscerally angry describing what happened. And not just the lies that were told and people like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz amplifying those lies, but just the fact that they weren't ready and they knew this was happening. But like, you know, when the senators were evacuated from the chamber, the police didn't know where to take them. They didn't have directions for them. There there literally just had been no planning for this scenario, even though Mitt Romney had been warned and subsequently warned McConnell about it. You know, this exact scenario, they just they weren't ready. And Romney still gets mad about that when he talks about it. And Liz Cheney, too. Speaking of things that many people agree on, Mitt Romney believes that Sarah Palin is a moron. (laughs) Discuss. So he he was vetted. Mitt Romney was one of several Republicans vetted by John McCain to be the vice president. Jesus, losing out to Sarah Palin, that's not good. Right. And so but it's funny because he tells me about how when McCain called him, to tell him, you know, you didn't get it. We went a different direction. He said, okay, that's fine. Who did you choose? And McCain said, Sarah Palin from Alaska. Romney immediately was just like, are you kidding me? Because Romney had actually (laughs) gotten to know Palin a little bit when he was head of the National Governors Association and recalled Palin as the least impressive Republican governor he knew. (laughs) She had no grasp of policy, no grasp of how campaigning worked. And and like he, he was kind of stunned that that's who McCain would pick. But it's interesting. He he told me that watching her on the campaign trail and the way that she pushed the boundaries of acceptable political rhetoric and whipped up these crowds into a frenzy, it it was kind of his first illustration of what the base of his party actually wanted. And it was was sort of eye-opening for him in a a sad way. Yeah. And I think that's right. And I think that that's how the road to Donald Trump is paved with her. So he's so candid and he's actually quite funny about people. (laughs) He is. Well, I mean, his journals are actually like often very funny and withering takes on various prominent Republicans. I mean, there's a quote in his journal, I can't remember it exactly, but about Newt Gingrich, where he says, Anne thinks he's a megalomaniac and needs a psychologist. (laughs) (laughs) He calls Rick Perry 
a low IQ prima donna. Yeah. He, you know, certainly has a lot of stories about Donald Trump with me where, you know, he said, you know, for a while I tried to kind of indulge this idea that Donald Trump, you know, maybe he didn't read and maybe he wasn't capable of like complex analysis, but he was a savant with certain things. That's the thing that Trump allies would always tell me. He said, after time, I just came to the conclusion that he's just really not smart. <laughs> <laughs> There's a Trump writer who writes about Trump all the time, and he always tells me that he's just very limited. That's the the phrase. <laughs> I love that Romney says Lou is a moron. Fox is an enabler to mm. Stuart Stevens. Speaking of Lou Dobbs, yeah. Yeah, Lou Dobbs, one of the absolutely dumbest people on television, which, you know, one of the big... Again, Oprah tries to get Mitt to run with her as his running mate. Discuss. Is that really true? I, I heard that. I was like, what? Well, so there's now been there's been a little controversy around this. Clip okay. Because, so this was in Mitt Romney's journal in uh, November of 2019. He writes the journal entry literally begins Oprah call today. <laughs> as you can imagine, going through his journals, I was like, huh? What? What? <laughs> So Oprah, according to his journal from that time, his contemporaneous notes from that time, she called to urge him to run as an independent in 2020 because she wasn't feeling great about the Democratic options. This is during the Democratic primaries. She wasn't sure if any of them could beat Trump. And she had been approached by Michael Bloomberg about running with him as an independent. God. And so she said, actually, let me go ask Mitt Romney instead. Uh, <laughs> she liked more than Michael Bloomberg. According to his journal, the idea was that they would run on a unity ticket to get Mitt and, and Oprah. After this claim came out, and Oprah didn't engage when I asked her about it when I was reporting the book, but after this leaked out in the news, Oprah put out a statement saying that he, she did call him that day and urge him to run as an independent, but that she wasn't planning to be on the ticket. And Romney says that she had suggested Oprah be on the ticket. But Mitt apparently thought that it was serious enough that he wrote about it in his journal, but he demurred because he didn't think that it would actually work. He thought that an independent ticket, and I still think this is true today, that an independent ticket would probably help Donald Trump, Trump or the, right. you know, the Democrats. Yes, agreed. Here's the question, Molly. Would you vote for a Romney Winfrey ticket or a Winfrey Romney ticket? <laughs> I can't even get involved in this. I'm so freaked out by the entire conversation. I do want to add my little bit of I don't know what this is. When I was a kid, I was once in my mom's house in Connecticut, which she no longer has. And I picked up the phone, the landline, which no one has anymore. And it was Oprah. Wow. And she was like, this is Oprah. And I was like, no, it's not. And she was like, no, no, it is. And I was like, no. And so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, no, it really is. And I was like, no. Wow. So by McKay Coppin's book and also Oprah makes her own phone calls. <laughs> Thanks, Molly. Thanks, McKay. Andy Kroll is a reporter at ProPublica. Welcome to Fast Politics, Andy. Great to be back. I want you to explain the provenance of this project first, and then what this project is second. The provenance has 1.6 billion reasons, and I'm only partially joking here. Right. You know, I'd followed Leonard Leo during the Trump years. He was this strange, fascinating guy who wore these, you know, incredibly fancy suits and he had like the train conductor pocket watch chain thing. He was just this curious character who was behind the scenes 
running like the only organized strategic thing of the whole Trump administration, which was their strategy on judges. Right. Which really worked out for them. Really worked out for them. I mean, Trump will go down as, you know, one of the most prolific judge appointers in history, given what he did in just four years, really what Leonard Leo did in four years. So he was on my radar for that reason. Like, who is this guy exactly? And how did he sort of managed to pull all of this off in the hurricane shitstorm of the Trump administration. And then last year in August, me and some colleagues here at ProPublica sort of helped break the story. A mysterious businessman in Chicago who made a donation to a Leonard Leo controlled group worth $1.6 billion, with a B, $1.6 yeah. billion, essentially cementing Leonard Leo's status as like the new kingmaker of the right. And it was at that point that we, I just said, we, you know, we, we have to understand why this guy is so influential and important that he would get $1.6 billion. So it's been a labor of love of sorts for the last year, but I'm happy to, to say that we got this, these stories out into the world. That billion dollar donation, just for backstory for my own edification here, what does make a person A, so rich that they give a person a billion dollars and B, what is that? And how did he get so rich? Yeah. You know, in the House of Cards version of this story, the donor would be, you know, like a weapons contractor or like a secret oil baron with like a glass eye and a cool scar or something. But in the world that we actually live in, right. the donor is a guy named Barry Side, and he's basically the power strip magnate of yeah, the United States. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> like the most boring utilitarian product you can think of. If anyone is listening, look at your power strip, and if it says trip light on it with two Ps. That's not how you spell trip, in case you're wondering. It is not. It is not. It's how trip light does, but it is not how the rest of the yeah. English-speaking world does. <laughs> Poor Jesse. You know a joke is bad when Jesse is, like, making sounds. All right, go on. Yeah. <laughs> this guy is Barry Side. is in Chicago. He's a cipher in so many ways. He is not uh, sort of, you know, a big public figure. He's not the guy who goes to state dinners at the White House. He's given tons of money to different causes on the conservative slash libertarian side of things over the years, but he's very secretive. He often gave his money through this thing called Donors Trust, which is basically like... Isn't that the Koch brothers? It's affiliated with them, yeah. You basically, you, you would give your money to Donors Trust and they sort of wipe the fingerprints off of the the money and then they give it out to like Coke stuff or Leonard Leo nice. stuff or so that sort of thing. You know, and the reporting that we did basically pointed us to this conclusion about Barry Side, which is you know, he's really, really old in his uh, mid to late eighties. But his kids are really mad at him. No kids. That's oh, the key. Yeah. Well, I, on behalf of his children, are really mad at him. <laughs> his biography was so thin when we started reporting that story about the $1.6 billion. We had the same thought. We're like, has he no heirs? <laughs> are they not totally ticked <laughs> off Best, at yeah. him? Turns out, no. Wow. So Leonard Leo is effectively his heir. the heir here. Yeah. And, you know, the way it was described to us was essentially, you know, look at what Leonard Leo has built. He built the Federalist Society into a juggernaut. He basically architected the 6-3 Supreme Court majority. And a guy like Barry Side sees that and says, well, you know, I bet he could take my money and deploy it in a way to make conservatives and libertarians everywhere quite pleased. 
And that is what happened. So explain to us a little bit about the story here. Yeah, this donation happens, obviously. It happens over sort of a year-long span because it's a lot of money. And also the, the donation happened in a way that allowed Berryside to basically avoid paying taxes. As I would hope. <laughs> As anyone forbid. would hope at that yes. level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah hate for them to have to pay, pay taxes like the rest of us. Yeah, go on. <laughs> and so when we uncovered this donation, which was the single largest known donation of its kind in American history at ProPublica, you know, we, we decide it's time to uh, to do the full treatment on Leonard Leo. And, you know, what we found, I think, is a really fascinating story in that the guy is the architect of the Supreme Court conservative majority, but that's just like one part of what he did, which is incredible to say because it's the it's the freaking Supreme Court of the United right. States. But it's really just one part of what he did. What he also did was build this huge machine that could influence who the Supreme Court justices are in key states. So Wisconsin and North Carolina and Florida, you name it. He built this sort of pipeline conveyor belt of like junior Scalia's and Thomas's. Oh, I'm excited for those guys to come down the pike. <laughs> oh, they're coming. Yeah, yeah. He's helping put people in as attorneys general. He's helping put people in as solicitors general who are the sort of the Robin to the Batman of the AG. He's really got his influence spread across like the whole legal landscape, which I don't think people understood, at least I did not understand until we sort of started down this path. Tell me some of the sort of top lines here, the things that will keep me up at night. Yeah, he has these relationships with Supreme Court justices that are both totally unique, kind of troubling in some ways, and so essential to understanding how he's kind of built this thing, this machine that he's built. He's the one who's like helping bring Justice Alito on the fishing trip to Alaska that right. my colleagues at ProPublica reported on. Every year when the Federal Society would have its big annual conference, the sort of nerd prom of the conservative legal world, Leo would have this like very small invite-only VIP dinner at some fancy restaurant in D.C. It would be him. It would be one or two of the justices. And these justices, let's take a minute here. These justices are not Breyer. You know, they're not. I mean, Breyer's not there anymore, but they're not Kagan. They're not Sonia Sotomayor. They are Alito and Thomas. And Scalia when he was alive. So, I mean, exactly. these are the, the ones who are the most sort of bought and paid for. Continue. So at these dinners, the other sort of, you know, there would be the Leo, some justices, some like kind of muckety mucks in the political world, like Scott Pruitt when he was oh, still God. a thing. <laughs> yeah. That Just for those of us who are keeping track at home, he was the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, but he did not do much protecting. He also was one of the very few people in Trump world to have to resign because of corruption. So imagine how corrupt you must be to have to do that. Yeah, like using your security detail to fly down the streets of Washington, D.C. to go to dinner yeah. levels of corruption. Yeah. yeah. I and mean, that's actually pretty tame compared to the actual things he did. But yeah, so, yes, so yes, people like yes. that. And then the other sort of bucket of people at these dinners were donors to the Federalist Society. Now, you and your listeners will love this, but, you know, one of the donors 
who would go to these dinners was George Conway. Yes. Now, yes. Now king of the resistance. I think, and I have said this to George when he's been on this podcast, and I say this to him when we hang out alone, he is one of the people who is the architect of all of this. So he has to repent. (laughs) I'm sure he... Love I, think, that. <laughs> I think he has very mixed feelings about, but you know, but I mean, it's true. I mean that that you know that the road to this is paved with dollars from George Conway. Credit to George, at least that when I called him up and talked to him, he both acknowledged all of those things that you just said, but also he had a understanding of the sort of psychological components of this, which I thought was, you know, in some some levels, it's crazy at some levels, but also totally revealing. I mean, the thing that George said that I thought was so fascinating, and and, and it's something he said that applies to not only Leo, but also all of this Thomas Alito stuff, even the Scalia stuff, we've also reported on ProPublica, is he said, look, you know, even though these guys are Supreme Court justices, like in Washington, you know, they feel that they're maligned. They feel that they're ostracized. They feel that their people are unfair in in, in their criticism of them. Yeah, my heart breaks for them. Yeah, right, right. That's usually the response. (laughs) Yeah. But that, you know, according to George, though, there is a real concern that a Scalia or a Thomas or a Leto might one day just say to, to literally quote George, fuck it, I'm quitting. If only I'm going to go make a ton of money at Jones Day, the conservative yes, law firm do it. or some other law firm. Go. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Go on. And so part of what Leonard Leo was doing was like finding ways to make these justices feel, you know, happy and oh, supported or something. The so that they my heart. Fuck those motherfuckers. Yes. Continue. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Your reaction is what I think a lot of people's reaction is when a conservative Supreme Court justice, someone with an incredible amount of power. Right. Is like, uh, you know, people are, are rude to me at restaurants. Man, yeah. this is this is terrible. But it is what it is. And who right. would know better than George? I mean, that was no, his milieu. True. Yeah. No, no. And I and I think that's a really good point. And and you know, I constantly criticize him for that. And by the way, <laughs> well deserved. But yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it is certainly they did believe they had a certain kind of religious like mandate. Oh, yeah. And it's important to understand it that way. I mean, Leo has been doing what he's doing for 30 years, building what he's been building, recruiting, having these dinners, etc. Explain to me why he isn't more hands on with those three justices he helped pick out. More hands on in what way? Like they don't hang out with him. They don't do dinners with him. That crew? I think that they do. Okay, so talk to us about that. These three justices are the the current, most current ones, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Coney Barrett. I mean, they're really interesting because in a lot of ways, they represent the sort of full operation of the full flowering, if you will, of what Leo has accomplished. I mean, someone like Kavanaugh, someone like uh, Coney Barrett, I mean, they came up, uh, Coney Barrett especially, you know, came up through sort of Catholic institutions, Catholic legal institutions like Notre Dame, taught at those Catholic legal institutions, involved in the Federalist Society, obviously, involved in all of these other sort of religious right legal efforts, you know, like the Alliance Defending Freedom, and, you know, then got a judgeship, took that judgeship to the next level, got appointed to the Supreme Court. So in some ways, like Amy Coney Barrett, to a degree, Gorsuch, to a degree, and Kavanaugh, they are what Leo had envisioned 30 years ago and have come to now. And look, these judges, they attend the big 
Federalist Society events every year. They sit next to the biggest donors to the Federalist Society at these galas. They hire clerks, which obviously one of the most coveted positions as a junior lawyer. They hire clerks who've come up through the Leo system. And then those clerks go on to become lawyers and judges and maybe justices someday. So I don't know. It kind of feels like the three most recent Trump appointed Supreme Court judges are not so much like pals of Leonard Leo's in a way that Scalia or Thomas or an Alito were, you know, closer to peers in some ways, or even with Scalia, you know, Leo sort of considered himself sort of a a mentee. I think that in some ways they are kind of, you know, a product of what Leo has done. So the relationship is different. They're still very much close, but the dynamic has changed, if that makes sense, from the first three to the second three. So what is his sort of grand plan? His grand plan is to take all this money he's got and to, among other things, use the Federalist Society model, the thing that he's done for the last 30 years, and expand it to a whole bunch of other parts of American society for the next 30 years or 20 years. So we're talking media, we're talking education, talking religion, talking sort of more specifically like, uh, you know, electoral politics. We're talking the climate fight, which they would sort of be on the other side of. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's this there's this group that we wrote about earlier this year called the Teneo Network. Leo is now the chairman oh, yeah. of the Teneo Network. And you know, the Teneo Network, again, wants to be the Federalist Society not for the law, but the Federalist Society for everything. They want to have venture capitalists. They want to have CEOs. They want to have U.S. senators. They want to elect a future president who is a Teneo member. You know, So it's pretty intense and it's very ambitious. Just because Leo's done it before doesn't mean he can do it again. But obviously, you don't want to sleep on this bigger vision of his. Oh, Jesus Christ. Tell me something that makes me slightly less depressed or more depressed. Just give us something to come out on. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think the the really interesting political trend we're seeing, and this ties directly to Leo, is the backlash to the Dobbs decision yeah. that overturned Roe v. Wade and the way that direct democracy has been used to push back on the agenda of people like Leonard Leo. You know, overturning Roe was the North Star for people yeah. like Leo for 30 years. They they got their judges there and then they got what they wanted with the Dobbs decision. Alito wrote it, you know, a guy that Leo put on the bench. But then you see ballot measures in Kansas and you see ballot measures in a bunch of other states. And we're going to have a big one in Ohio in a couple of weeks where voters, including in states that are not, you know, bastions of blue Democratic Party support. People voted to protect or expand reproductive rights. People who've read our coverage and have come away feeling that they can't do anything, feeling sort of impotent in the face of Leonard Leo and his operation. I always tell them, I mean, look, the people of Kansas, after Dobbs, put the issue on the ballot and voted overwhelmingly to protect reproductive rights. No no one man with all his money on the left or the right can just dictate how democracy works, especially when something's on the ballot like reproductive rights is. I think this Ohio abortion rights vote this in a couple of weeks is going to be something to watch for sure. And then next year, seeing how the candidates talk about Roe and abortion rights, it galvanized people in 2022. It could very well do it again in 2024. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And now your moment of fuckery. 
Jesse Cannon. Bye, Junk Fest. I'm going to fess up. I think that there's like backbenchers, nosebleed benchers. I know Tom Emmer was the majority whip for the Republicans, but I'm going to admit he's got that charisma that makes me forget who he is every other week. What do you see in here as he tries to become speaker? Again, charisma. We're not at charisma here. <laughs> the Burn It Down Caucus continues its self-immolation. Incredible stuff here. Tom Emmer who is the one person in this speakership race who has any kind of experience doing what the speaker needs to do. That guy is on the verge of collapse. Multiple Republicans telling CNN 26 Republicans opposed in a closed door vote, citing concerns over his record on fiscal and social issues. He was too responsible. Another one, Representative Luna, who was a complete- Puts the Luna in lunatic. Yeah, there you go. She came out against him and Trump is now publicly attacking him as a rhino. I was told everything Trump touches dies and we're seeing that firsthand here. And so that is our moment of fuckery. And right after we recorded this, Tom Emmer dropped out, perhaps because Donald Trump texted everyone in the Republican caucus a mean quote unquote truth about him. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.